All right, let's pray as we get started. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We pray for those who are uh, either on their way right now or are planning to come to the main gathering and uh, just pray for protection and for safety. Uh, Lord, we thank you um, for the opportunity to gather to talk even a little bit about um, uh, Ruth this morning as an example of o uh, Old Testament narrative. And uh, Lord, help us to be better readers of Scripture. Um, not just so that we can know the words better and the ideas, but so that we might ultimately know you better. We ask for that. Um, Lord, just pray for Rachel's opportunity with her former co-worker um, and her and her husband not uh, being with the saints um, for a couple years, Lord. And there's just, I just pray that you would move them and direct them uh, to a sound church uh, where they could be fed and where they could grow. Um, we would ask for that. Bless our time this morning, we would ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we are talking about um, how to read the scriptures well. Um, of course, in general, the general overarching approach is where you're looking for the human author's intent, uh, because that is also God's intent, speaking through men in their times and places and skills and abilities and styles and all of that. Uh, our methodology in general is observation, interpretation, application. We want to interpret, which means we want to understand the human author's intent before we apply, uh, and always before we apply. Uh, and then what we've been doing is just walking through different types of narrative, or excuse me, different types of genres. Um, and so we've talked about the New Testament epistle. We started there because that's the most familiar. Uh, we've talked about um, poetry, both in terms of psalms and also wisdom literature. And uh, then we started talking about last week um, narrative, narrative. Um, and I'll just remind you uh, and finish up a couple categories. And like I said last week, these are things that help you get they help frame what you're looking for in terms of observations. So kind of, um, that's how it changes. So in a New Testament epistle, you're, you're sensitive to different things than you are in uh, narrative. So in a New Testament epistle, I'm going to be watching my conjunctions very closely um, because they, they build Paul, Paul or whoever, Peter, um, Peter's argument. So, um, but uh, in, in poetry, I'm looking for parallelism. In narrative, I'm looking for a number of different things, but we talked about plot, um, plot the idea of that's just the overall flow of the story. It builds in general, it builds to a climax and then it comes down. Uh, we're looking at characters, um, how do characters develop or not developed? How are they portrayed? Um, we said that um, in narrative, um, the author wants you to draw inferences. There's gaps that he leaves, and so it's not explicit. He's getting you to think, uh, and he's wanting you to draw inferences to make conclusions. So that's uncomfortable because Paul comes right out and says something usually, uh, whereas uh, in an Old Testament, well, whether you're in, in Old Testament or New Testament narrative, you have to be comfortable with drawing inferences. We talked about repetition. Repetition is really important for narrative. Uh, repetition, not just in the exact repetition of words, uh, but even things like motifs. So we talked about things like silver in the Joseph narrative. Like that's a repetition, but it's not like words. It's more of like an idea uh, or even things like type scenes uh, or tropes would be another way for that. Um, you know, the idea of meeting at a well and you meet your, um, your, your spouse at the well. That happens a lot in narrative in the Old Testament. 
Um, but repetition is important because when you see it, the author wants you to think about the repetition and to kind of compare and contrast with what he's already done with that um, previously with that repetition. Uh, there's just a couple other things I wanted to mention before we look at Ruth a little bit. Uh, another thing to pay attention to um, in narrative is time. Time. Um, and there's a couple aspects of this. Uh, one thing to pay attention to for time in narrative, uh, narrative is how, uh, long, how much time elapses in real time, so the actual events, versus how long it takes to narrate something. Uh, and depending on what the author is doing, um, he, he's portraying something. So uh, turn to Genesis 38. Kind of been using the Joseph narrative as an example. Um, but you see this in Genesis 38, which is Judah and Tamar. Um, and I'll, I'll illustrate this idea of time. Okay, so someone read Genesis 38, um, 1 through 5. Okay, now, this is a good illustration of how long events take versus how long it takes to narrate. How long, roughly speaking, um, does it take uh, for what happens in those first five verses? At least a few years, right? Um, how is it portrayed in the narrative? Very quickly, right? So you've got, you know, could be, um, uh, even if you look at to verse 6, Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. So we're talking multiple years, maybe, uh, um, you know, from the time that Ur gets born to the time he's ready to get married. So we're talking 15, 16 years, maybe, right? So a lot of time passes really quickly uh, in terms of what actually happened. But the way the narrator narrates it, the way Moses narrates it, it's... And that's purposeful. It's purposeful because what is he really... He portraying, that portrays um, in the narrative, it portrays a certain amount of aggressiveness on the part of Judah, uh, which is actually part of this narrative, and it's also part of the broader narrative of who's going to lead the family forward. And here, at least it seems like in Gen um, Genesis 38, a lot of what's going on with Judah um, is he's trying to kind of go his own way and make his own family. So even in terms of how the narrator presents that, Okay, we got 15 years narrated like this. Um, and even through that, it's contributing to that characterization of Judah as he's aggressive, he's pursuing his own interests. The text doesn't explicitly say that. You have to draw that inference from how even time is presented. Does that make sense? So that time is one of those things you want to keep your eye out for. We're going to actually see that in Ruth. Um, so keep your eyes out for that. Um, here's a rule of thumb. 
the more time uh, that an author spends on something, the more importance in general. Uh, especially this is true when you go to dialogue. When you go to dialogue, what's, um, is there any difference between the event time and the narrator time? Yeah, yeah. So in a dialogue, you're tracking the back and forth. In your dialogue, you've just you've just scaled your narrated time right down to event time, so it's one to one. And there's something the author is doing in that dialogue. He's spending time there. So um, what is he doing? The more time, the more importance in general. Other things with time, you can get things like flashbacks. We're familiar with that, right? Uh, in a movie, sometimes you get a flashback to a previous event that's rele relevant. Uh, um, you can also get flash forwards, like uh, kind of predictions and things. Uh, Joseph's dreams kind of fall into that category in the Joseph narrative. Um, there's other things like that as well. Here's a key point to keep in mind, especially in Old Testament narrative, although it does happen in the Gospels as well. Um, plots don't have to be purely chronological, meaning that the narrator will sometimes arrange events in such a way that they are not chronological, um, but he's arranging them in such a way to tell what he wants to tell. Uh, and so some of the Gospels will do that. Uh, I, uh, I, I can't remember which one is the most chronological. I think Luke might be. Uh, but in general, um, uh, there can be distortions to that because uh, not because the author's like saying, oh, this happened right away next, but he's just saying, hey, you want to compare and contrast. You want to see this event in light of what just came before. So that's something else to keep in mind with um, narrative. Um, the only other thing just to m make mention of when we're talking about narrative, so you've got time, you've got characters, you've got plot, you've got gaps that you need to feel, fill and draw inferences from. Uh, the last thing is the ending. Um, in general, when you have a narrative, you need a good ending. And what is a good ending? A good ending bears the weight and hopes and, uh, and anxieties, or weights of hopes and anxieties from the ideal reader's expectations. So the narrative, narrative as you walk through a narrative, it's conditioning you to want to see certain things happen. For example, in the Joseph narrative, what as the reader do you, are you conditioned to want to see happen? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> or um, you kind of, the positive version of that, you want to see, you want to see the family restored. That's what drives a lot of that narrative forward, and that's how it ends, right? At least it, there's a lot of resolution of how that works. There's other things in the narrative, like who's going to leave the family forward? That's a big question. And you do get some of that um, by Genesis 49. You, like, uh, you see, okay, Joseph's going to be prominent, but Judah's going to be prominent. Um, so there's still some questions, and that kind of creates tension for the later biblical narrative. But there is some indication, even in the Joseph narrative, hey, Judah's going to be the guy to lead. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it. So when you think about an ending... The ending ties up all the threads. Uh, it, it bears, it's supposed to bear all the weight of the reader's expectations. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind as we walk through narrative. Okay, let's, let's, let's do some practice. So go to Ruth. Ruth is four chapters, nice um, self-contained narrative. Um, 
and we're going to just focus in on chapter one. Basically, chapter one is kind of the first unit um, in the narrative. So uh, someone go ahead and read uh, the first five verses of Ruth. Okay. Um, how would we characterize this section in terms of plot? What's happening? Oh, so, okay, yeah, you're thinking of the, the, the plot as a whole. So, yeah, there's, um, you can, it's, there's, true, yeah. So, I'm not thinking in terms of just the, uh, that's definitely true. We, we see that, and that's very important to the narrative. Um, think about what section of the plot are we in. So remember we said in general the plot kind of starts out flat, you've got exposition, then there's some rising tension, there's something that kicks off the narrative, then you get a climax, and then you get falling action, and then you wrap up all your loose threads. Yeah, this is the prologue, this is the background, this is the exposition. Some people debate whether the, um, you know, does the exposition only go through verse 2, um, uh, you know, and then the deaths are the start of um, the tension rising. There's definitely some of that, um, but the main events, it seems like, really kick off in verse 6. However, before we go farther, what do you notice um, in these first five verses? We're on observation stage. Okay, they left their homeland. Now, let me give you a little geography. You can turn to your book of maps if you want to, but Moab is right across the Dead Sea from Judah, and in fact, Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem looks, you can literally look across the Dead Sea in, right into Moab. So they start in Bethlehem, um, and they can, you can look right across the Dead Sea into Moab. There's a cool picture I have uh, in our Bible study on Friday nights when we went through Ruth. I showed this picture where you've got Bethlehem in the foreground, and then right in the background, you can see the hills of Moab. So you got to understand, it's, you know, there's still a journey there, but it's relatively close. Um, so there's, there's that. Okay, what else? Okay, yeah, so that's a, that's a key thing, right? So they've gone into this land. Uh, when do the guy, the, when do the boys marry? After their father dies. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? They only marry after their father dies, so that's, I don't know what, if it means anything, but it's, it's just at least worth noting. We're just trying to pick up the, uh, the details. Uh, oh, go ahead.
Yep. 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 Family names. And speaking of names, uh, names in general in uh, Old Testament narrative uh, are very important. So let me help you here with some of the names. Elimelech is something like um, uh, my God is king. Um, and uh, Naomi means pleasant or pleasantness. Uh, Malon is like weakling or something like that or sickly. And Kilion is like something similar, um, which kind of happens in the story. So there's that. Um, Bethlehem is literally house of bread, Beth Lachem. Um, house of bread, which, well, that's interesting. Why is that interesting? In terms of the narrative that we're seeing here. There's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. Um, so that's kind of, um, there's a bit of a play going on there. Okay, so there's a famine. Um, now, speaking, we, we were talking a few minutes ago about going, going to sojourning in Moab. Now, given what you know about um, just previous events in the biblical storyline, uh, what, what do you know about Moab? Yeah, so Moab comes from Lot, an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters. Okay, so there's that. What else, though? What else happens about Moab? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And specifically, so you're right, it's the back door kind of to the promised land. And specifically, if you go to Numbers, at the end of Numbers, there's this big deal with Moab where Balak hires Balaam. So Balak's the king of Moab, and he's like, hey, curse these people. So Moab is not a friendly nation at all. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's a, the Israelites commit adultery with the Moabites, and God kills a bunch of Israelites because of it. Uh, and in fact, there's even stipulations in the law that uh, like Moabites to the 10th generation, even to the 10th generation, shouldn't be part of the community of Israel, right? So given that, how, is the, how do you think, does the narrator come right out and say that this is good or bad, what's going on here? He doesn't. However, given what we know, how is he characterizing this situation? This is not good. Um, this is not good. Um, uh, yeah, so there's some desperateness because there's a famine in the land. Now, even that, uh, what's a big deal about a famine being in Israel? Why, why is that a big deal? It, it's one of the curses from Deuteronomy, right? So, uh, and it also corresponds with the idea of what time frame is it? During the Judges. Judges is a terrible period. It's awful. Um, and you, you, throughout Judges, you see um, covenant curses coming upon Israel again and again and again. Different periods, they kind of repent, and they, but it gets worse and worse. And um, so it's during the time of the Judges, it's like, okay, something's going on in Israel. They're being disobedient, so there's a famine in the land. These people decide to go over to Moab, which is... Um, Given what we know about Moab, uh, it characterizes the whole situation as uh, this is not good. Uh, even more so, um, so they going, they're going there, they're sojourning. Uh, where do they go? Oh, it says country. Interesting. 
yeah, uh, country, um, well, we'll keep reading. There's a particular theme with regard to Moab that I think you'll see. Um, but uh, the, the, the sons marry Moabite women, um, which given what happened in Numbers, uh, that's not good. Um, and whether that is only happening because the father died and they're kind of going astray, hard to tell. Uh, what else do you notice about just the first five verses? Yes. She, she, lo- yeah. Yes. And this is where background, like this person, this woman, and it's focused on Naomi. You kind of introduces this whole family, but then by the time we get to verse five, the focus shifts to Naomi specifically, not to Ruth, not to Orpah, not yet, but non Naomi. Um, and this woman is. Uh, basically without any security in that society whatsoever. Um, That's her plight, okay? Uh, What about time? Uh, We were just talking about time and observing time. What's uh, going on with time here in this first little bit? Okay, yeah, so 10 years. How long did it take to narrate? A paragraph, not long, okay? Especially given that the rest of the book probably happens within the next year, right? So you've got like a 10-year period narrated. Obviously, we're just doing setup, so it's pretty, it's getting to the point, right? Um, uh, Not spending a a huge bunch of time. Um, I mean, what kind of questions do we even have coming out of this, this, this section? What kind of gaps do we have that we just don't know? Yeah, what caused the deaths? Yeah, yeah. Did they starve to death? Did they? Did they? Um, did God punish? You know, was this God's punishment? Doesn't say that. We don't know. Um, but what caused the deaths? Uh, why Moab? Uh, what other questions uh, would you want to ask at this point? Now, forget for, forget for a second. Pretend that you don't know anything about the story of Ruth. Okay, just pr- pretend that for a minute. What? What other questions might you ask? I think there's a lot of assumptions even on their like social status. Okay. I mean, when they use the word, I don't think that when they use the word sojourn, you're thinking, you know, kind of, they, maybe they had a tent. <laughs> yeah. Know, um, they obviously, that this, otherwise, if they were in, a, in an established house or some kind of family structure or something, probably wouldn't have left, even if it was a famine. Well, and that's, that's an interesting question, too, because we know the famine is like, curses, covenant curses, but like there's, um, and we do know, uh, like it's just a question of like, why are they sojourning? Why are they leaving? Um, there's questions about, well, what are they doing in relation to their covenant fidelity? You know, is this good? Is this bad? Should they have stayed? Should they not? Um, we don't really have the answers to those questions, but those are at least get you thinking um, and engaged in the narrative. Okay, yeah. 
Could be. Could be. At the very least, we know they're from Judah. And we do know from like Genesis 49, there's supposed to be great things coming out of Judah at some point. So that's a little bit to bring in. Um, here's my question. Why in the heck do we care about this family? Like, I mean, we just start reading it and we get engaged, but like, why do we care about this family? I mean, it, it sounds a little cold, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's sad what's happening, but what's the big deal? I mean, we, we've never seen this family before. We kind of know a little bit of the tribe they're coming from, but like, why do we care? Um, and... Uh-huh. And they are there two years. Yeah. Or they're there two years after they married. Why in the world would you force them not to have children? Yeah. Yeah, there's that. So that makes me think they're barren. Maybe. Possibly. And so so then they they go trekking off trekking out of there, uh, obviously because God has plans for another piece. Yeah. And Yeah, and that's what like Well, and that's where you're, you're, um, that's where the narrative ends, right? But like, if you you kind of have to the, the narrator assumes you're an ideal reader, which an ideal reader means you have all the information you need, and you're thinking and asking the questions he wants you to ask, right? So pretend you're just for the first time reading Ruth. Uh, you don't know where it ends yet, and like you're reading this, and it's like, well, this is very sad, and. There's questions. There's questions of covenant fidelity going on here. There's, um, you know, the whole Moab thing. Uh, why didn't they go back sooner? There's all sorts of questions like that. But there's also the question of, like, why do we care about the family? And eventually we do get the answer of why we care about the family, but not until the, the very end. But that question is actually going to drive the, one of the questions, not the only question, but it is one of the questions that's going to drive the narrative forward um, amongst others. Um, Okay, let's move on a little bit more. Someone go ahead um, and let's read um, 6 through 18. I'll go ahead and read that. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt um, with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you might find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And uh, they said to her, No, we will return to you, uh, with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah, 
not Oprah, Orpah, um, kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. All right. What do you see? Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, she's, in one sense, like, um, so there's a lot going on here because what, what you're describing is characterization. We're character, now that, we had no sense of the character of Naomi in verses one through five, or anyone for that matter, really. Maybe a little bit of hints here and there about what happened and going to Moab and staying or going. But here, once we get into some dialogue, which if you remember, there's a means, there's, there's a hierarchy of understanding what the most, um, uh, direct information. There's the narrator's comment, which is always trustworthy. There's dialogue, which is where you get a lot of information. And then there's just events. So far, we've just seen events. We haven't seen much beyond that. Now we're into dialogue, which gives us some more direct, more trustworthy information about character. So we see in Naomi uh, pragma- pragmatism for the daughters-in-law uh, because... Um, yeah, and that society, they're vulnerable too. Um, so um, it seems like that that's probably, she's trying to do something good for them. Uh, did you notice, uh, here's an interesting thing to point out. Um, where is it? Okay, uh, verse 8. Uh, it says, Go return each of you to her mother's house. Now this, may Yahweh deal kindly. What does your translation read? ESV says, deal kindly. What does your translation read? What does like NASB read? Okay, kindly. Okay. I'm thinking... I thought there was... Um, I want to make sure... Let me pull up another version just real quick. I thought it read something different. Oh, here we go. Oh, no. It's, uh, somewhere in one of the, the translation I was reading the other day, it said steadfast love or loving kindness. You guys have, does anyone have that? Or am I looking at the wrong verse? Um, yeah, no, it is in verse 8. Okay, so... Uh, Go return each of you. So this is the Legacy Standard Bible. Um, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. Okay, this word loving kindness or um, is uh, the word chesed. 
which is this word steadfast love uh, or loyal love. That's the idea. It's covenant love. Okay, so it's a very key term. Now, the ESV and the NASB has evidently thought that, well, maybe this doesn't have covenant overtones here. But think about what Naomi is asking. Go return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh show loving kindness with you as you have shown with the dead and with me. Now, what is, what is Naomi asking? Okay, from God. But where is she sending them? Back to Moab. Do you see a problem with that? So, like, it's interesting because they're Moabites, but at least on the surface, Naomi wants something good for them, but she's also sending them back to a place that is outside of God's covenant community, yet she's asking, at least on the surface, hey, may Yahweh bless you as you've shown kindness to me. Mm-hmm. Um, if she has that in mind that they did wrong in doing that in the first place, it would not be a kindness to them to take them back to Israel. They would be nothing but widows for the rest of their life. Yeah, so that's the other that's the other dynamic. That's good. You're picking up on that, right? Because like it just raises the whole question, what's the right thing to do? <laughs> you know, like because on one level, right, God is has a heart for the nations. We know that. Yet these people are people that are like one of Israel's primary enemies and has been trouble to them. Uh, and yet evidently, even in what Naomi says, they've shown kindness to her uh, to some degree. And then she kind of wishes God's kindness on them. But yeah, there's a dilemma, right? Do you send them back? And what does she say later? She, uh, you know, she's talking about Orpah when she leaves. What does she say? Your, your Orpah, your sister-in-law has gone back to what? her people and her gods, right? So there's just this kind of weird tension happening here. Do you see that? Um, just interesting. Um, and, okay, what else? What else do we, what else do we see? Mm. <laughs> yeah, and that's the question, how much do they understand, you know, and by the, you know, we're early on, so they don't understand much right now, if anything, so. Uh, here's the other thing, though, we talked about it a little bit, how does she view God in what he is? She's d- in great distress. Yeah, she's in great distress. She's, you know, we don't undersell that at all, she is in great distress. She's probably right, how does she characterize what God has done? We're not commenting on whether she's right or wrong. We're just wondering how she, how does she, how is she characterizing it? Yeah. So she views that that what has happened um, is from God's hand, and that it's specifically directed against her. Okay. Now, how true, it, in general, how true is that? It, 
Okay? So does, does God a, a decree that calamity happen to his people? Yes. Uh, does that necessarily mean that there is opposition specific against an individual? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, Job, right. Job is the premier example, right? Calamity, God causes calamity to come upon him, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it, you know, God has a purpose behind it, but being able to interpret that purpose is difficult, right? She's interpreting it one way. Maybe she's right, maybe she's wrong, but we need to at least note how she's thinking about, uh, about it as a character, right? Oh yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, I mean that's that's a whole other theological thing. But basically, we would we would def, we, you can affirm this: God decrees that disaster come. It's part of His plan. Uh, he is not the direct. Um, he even talks about other places in the scriptures. I cause I cause well being and I cause calamity, um, and He does it for His own purposes for the ultimate good of His glory. So. Um, but, at least here, we're just trying to see, the focus has been on Naomi, it is on Naomi, we're just trying to understand her as a character, how she's thinking about it, okay? Now, speaking, we, we've kind of got a sense of the character of Naomi, uh, we do, um, do we get, uh, we've got two other characters kind of involved in the dialogue, okay? Orpah and Ruth. Um, what happens with Orpah and Ruth? Yeah, does do um, does Orpah return at the first appeal of Naomi? No, she doesn't. Right, she sticks around for a little bit. Um, do we ever hear Orpah speak? No, we never hear Orpah speak at all, um, which is interesting. Uh, what what do we see about Ruth? Ruth speaks. What do you notice about her character? So we're thinking in terms of character right now. We got kind of a handle on the character of Naomi a little bit. What about the character of Ruth? She was devoted and sacrificed to Naomi, right? Yeah, great devotion. Like, whoa. Um, yeah, yeah. What kind of a devotion is that? Like, um, oh, that's the wrong way to ask the question. Um, what does that show us? Like, is there any, at least it's what's portrayed in the text, um, how is Ruth viewed? Purely positive, purely... Possibly, but is that her motivation? What's her motivation? Yeah. Yeah, she loves her. The language is so strong. Cling, cling is the same word that's used in um, Genesis 2 for you um, cling to your wife. It's that kind of, it's a very, very strong word, okay? So her motivation is to stay with Naomi. She's showing devotion. She's loyalty. Um, her, there seems to be no negatives, at least as the narrator is portraying her as a character. She's like, She's viewed, even as we talked about, she almost seems viewed more positively than Naomi at this point, right? She's characterized uh, as, and if you think about the terms, the big question is covenant faithfulness, isn't it? We've been asking that question, well, what about this family? What about even Naomi? 
she's calling for God's covenant faithfulness on this person, but there's some questions about her motivations too. But who do you see in the chapter who's the most covenantly faithful person? Ruth, which is, she's a Moabite, it's unexpected, it's, it's a reversal of expectations, which the narrator is using to create his, his story. Yeah, 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 you're, I see what you're saying there, yeah, yep. Okay, so we've got characterization for Naomi, we've got characterization for Ruth. Any repetitions that you see in this, um, in this section? Yeah, that's like a big word, like go back, return, 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 return. Naomi's returning, but you guys return, um, so there's... Uh, there's that going on. Uh, that's that's a big one. So let me ask you ask the question of uh, the way they do things when the daughters marry your sons, they exact their claim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's interesting what Naomi says, right? You go back to your people and to your gods, like, which is a big deal. But in the narrative, probably what's, there's, there's this, um, and that's even part of a repetition, right? You're supposed to compare and contrast Orpah and Ruth. Orpah doesn't talk much, right? But she's kind of there as a foil, for Ruth's to to even shine more brightly, Ruth's character, and all of this. Here's another interesting uh, thing. It's harder to pick up on, uh, but a lot of the words that are it talks about, like the country of Moab, uh, it actually is like the fields of Moab. Like that gets mentioned multiple times. Like uh, the fields of Moab, the fields of Moab, the field. So, and that's another type of repetition that you're going to see in the book because. What it's it's a motif. What what have we seen in the book dealing with fields? Well, that'll come later, right? There's gleaning in the fields. That'll be a big deal. There's a famine, right? Um, there's a lack of food. Uh, you're going to go into. They went to Moab to to the fields of Moab to get food. Um, so there's kind of this motif of, uh, like, is there no where are you? Is there fertility in the land where you are? And it just kind of this, it's this subtle repetition or idea that the author brings forward. He starts with it. It, um, 
uh, you know, you hear that refrain, in the fields she heard of Moab, she heard about this. Uh, she heard that God visited, um, uh, you know, his people. And then you see fields and barley and things like that play a huge motif, motif sort of role in the rest of the book. Right. Yeah. Potentially, it 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 um it, it could be that they're home. So the the question is, they could definitely be homeless. The question is, is that what's foremost in the author's mind, or is it, you know, kind of building this idea of uh, where is fertility in terms of food, and then ultimately, as we are going to see, right, fertility in terms of like your family, um, and building your family. That's, that's key because, like you mentioned, the house of bread, I watched a video of a Jewish rabbi, and one of the things that he was emphasizing in this little dialogue was how paramount in their culture and in their mind bread was. Mm. Bread was life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this, it's giving you a flavor of what you're paying attention to in narrative. And it's, it's, um, it's way different than an epistle, right? Because uh, you're picking up on motifs, you're picking up on artistry, you're picking up on how things are presented and said. And you have to draw some inferences um, because the author has in mind how he wants you to form the picture and how he's commenting indirectly. And you have to pull that together and that's why uh, narratives are designed to be re- not only read once, but read and reread, right? So you pick up more as you go through it multiple times. So it's fine. Like, there's an ideal reader, right, where you pick up on all this stuff, you tie it together. But for us, that takes time. It takes multiple readings. And that's, that's fine. That's part of how they're designed to be as a story um, and a, a narrative in that culture. So uh, that's where we're going to pause. So... Um, uh, we'll probably do a little bit more maybe on narrative next week. Um, we'll see. But at the very least, uh, hopefully we've given a taste and a flavor of the kinds of things you're looking for when you're, you're reading and looking at a narrative. They're really fun. Um, uh, it's really fun to do. So, All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that you have provided uh, through that family. Uh, you have provided uh, King David and then ultimately uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. Um, we thank you for examples of covenant faithfulness. Lord, may we be a covenantly faithful people to what you have called us to. Help us to love one another, to cling to one another, um, because we're yours, because we're part of the same family, oh Lord God. And uh, thank you for this time this morning. Uh, again, just ask for prayer, for safety, for those who are on their way to the gathering. Bless the gathering. Bless us as we sing, as we hear your word preach, as we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we get to partake of um, juice and bread, um, even as we were just talking about how a bread um, connotes life, uh, and you have given us life in yourself, life as individuals, and life as a community, and we thank you for that. Uh, prepare our hearts, we would ask in Christ's name, amen.